Hello folks, welcome back. Nick Hammond here with Around the World in 80 Cigars. I hope you're all in fine form. I've been ridiculous weather here in England. It's been snowing. Happy Easter. Although as I speak, the sun is shining, which is a blessing, although it's bitterly cold. And we are, <clears throat> remarkably enough, you know, a year on since I started making these things, we're still all locked in. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. Although, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, things are a lot better than they they looked during that long, bleak, cold winter. Uh, let's forget that nonsense, as always, and move on to things that bring us joy. Like good food, good wine... Great people in amazing places, cracking cigars, and a bit of joy. Um, today we have a guest who is a bit of a, a legend, really. Um, I'll let the uh, I'll let the introduction and the uh, and the interview speak for itself. But um, suffice to say, he's uh, a big figure in the cricket world, and I'm sorry for my overseas listeners. I can hear switching off in droves. But uh, um, cricket is a big love of mine. It always has been a huge part of my life. I played a bit, not to any great level, but I've loved it all my days. Travelled the world watching cricket with the England cricket team. Um, my father was a huge cricket fan and, and, uh, and spread that to us lads. And, um, and we've always, always loved the ebb and flow of a great test match and... Uh, and this gentleman has, you know, has seen, personally witnessed and been involved with reporting on some of the greatest cricketing moments in, certainly in the last uh, 50 years, probably. Um, so it's a lovely, lovely listen, very personal for me, a great chance to catch up with this chat. We have a bit of a history. Um, we've worked together on a few things. So um, it was lovely. Lovely to be able to catch up with him and, and, and speak cricket, you know, which is one of my great loves, as I said. And uh, and I did send him a cigar, which he enjoyed as well. So lovely to know this chap's a cigar lover. Um, just before we crack straight in, I want to tell you that uh, copies of the audiobook of Around the World in 80 Cigars are flying off the uh, metaphorical shelves. Uh, you can download it, straight download, automatic, no messing about, from www.nick-hammond.com. And you've been doing that, and we've got purchases from uh, England and America and Australia, and it never fails to amaze me where you guys pop up from. Um, I must mention my partners and friends, Souter Cigars of Mayfair, uh, Souter, S-A-U-T-T-E-R, cigars.com. My good pal, Lawrence Davis. He is, of course, my partner in crime in many escapades, not least, it seems at the moment, bundles of live events. Um, we're on twice a week doing live Instagram with our quiz at 6pm on a Friday. Uh, and we've, got, uh, we've had at least uh, one or two other events this week. In fact, events have become a huge part of my life. And to me, when I say events, I'm talking about online events, which I'm hosting. Um, something that I never for a moment dreamt that I would become involved with, but I have in this uh, weird world we find ourselves. And now I've had not really an experience of it, but I'm a host and an interviewer. Of course, I've got an experience of interviewing, but um, sort of almost like a sort of TV host 
come anchor man um pulling everything together and i never thought i'd be doing that but that's what i'm doing and lots of it five six nights a week at the minute and whilst that's refreshing and great to keep busy it's exhausting utterly exhausting so uh i am taking a few days off next week with the family and i have banned all online events <laughs> much to lawrence's chagrin but um Enough is enough. I'd cricked my back the other day and it's because I just spent so long sitting in this chair doing Zoom events and on Instas and things like that. So uh, that's gone massively. I must also thank Bovida and it is Bovida, B-O-V-E-D-A, um, Bovida, the masters of two-way humidification, bovidainc.com if you'd like to look them up, inc.com. Um, and our friends there... Absolute must-haves for the cigar industry and keeping your wonderful cigars humidified exactly how you like it. Um, Rutherford's England, of course, have uh, long looked after me. Makers of some of the most exquisite accessories for gentlemen and beyond. Um, you will find discerning people in far-flung places in the world actively seek out Rutherford's England stuff beautiful leather attache cases and really cool pieces check them out rutherford's r-u-t-h-e-r-f-o-r-d-s england.com right that's enough of that uh i'm sort of tentatively beginning to plan some travels whether or not they actually come to pass is another matter but uh there is some talk of getting out and about and doing things so that's brilliant so Without further ado, I must let you crack on and listen to today's guest. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Peter. Lovely to join you. Just for me, a sort of trip down, um, a sentimental trip down memory lane for me, for, the, for my love of cricket and, and the sort of, um, not sure how you describe it, but it is a very comforting place in my life, cricket, which I always return to, brings me back to peace and happiness and days in the sun. Um, so thank you for joining me, Peter. Good morning. Good to hear you, it's, sir. And you, yes. Yes, it's um, slightly different circumstances, but, but actually, funny enough, um, all this Zoom technology and that sort of thing is pretty much how Test Match Special has just been performing from Sri Lanka. Oh, of course. I mean, that's quite a feat, isn't it? Because they've managed to get a feed from the cricket, which they can all watch at the same time. So they're talking about the same thing at the same time. And then they're all independently on Zoom, I guess. Yes. I mean, the trouble is, um, when you commentate off a television set, you are completely at the mercy of the director. And I know I've done it when, yeah. in my case, when the line went down. On a few occasions when I was I was in London and from places all around the world, or sometimes even places all around this country, um, and you suddenly have to commentate off the television screen. And the main trouble is you don't know where the fielders are. You right. can't see, and so and I I noticed one of the things I noticed about the TMS commentary over these last two Test matches is that the ball heads to the boundary. And the commentator has no idea whether it's going to be cut off or not because he can't see the other fielders. The camera no. follows the ball. Of course. And sometimes a fielder appears at the last minute, puts a hand down, and sometimes <laughs> there's no one near it. Well, that's a bit like 
one of the stories from your book I was catching up with last night, you know, and it, you were in a stadium somewhere with two massive concrete stat a post in the way and once so you had to one of you sit one side and one the other and try and call it who was going to field it or not yes i remember that was calcutta we used to was have it? a commentary box right at the back of the stand with these massive concrete pillars that was the first time i ever did did commentary on a test match and yeah someone played a played a shot firmly into uh, the blind spot that i had behind the pillar and it didn't come out the other side <laughs> And I said, well, it must have been fielded. And, and I can't remember who was on with, but he said, actually, it was a drop catch. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Try on there, Charles. Oh, damn. And I was reading it, and I think your book, Can Anyone Hear Me, where you talk about how it all happened and how you started to get involved. Was it 73, Peter, something like that? 73 was 73. Yeah, when I was first appointed cricket producer, yeah. And it um, just struck me how... You know, you might as well have been talking about the, the last century in a way because how much things have changed, which is purely, I guess, with the advent of the mobile phone for a start. But, you know, you, you, you started off as the sort of guy in the studio and then they, they had the great um, wisdom to say, well, why don't we actually try and get some coverage live from abroad? And you were the first to, to go abroad. Was it India the first one? That was the first tour I went on. And we, I mean, the... Um... The previous tour, we'd sent one person, and the one before that, we didn't send anybody because the communications were so bad. Right. And even even on that tour in in eighty one, um, we uh, there were places where we just didn't never made contact at all. Really? You know, you could go for four days. There was a place called Jammu up in Kashmir, uh, and we we went four days. I never spoke. To London at all. <laughs> Kept trying, but never did it because ah. no mobile phones in those days. And the only places you could direct dial um, from in India uh, were Bombay and Delhi. So there were literally weren't any phone lines anywhere. Well, you, there were phone lines. You had to get hold of a, an operator and persuade yeah. them, right. and they would say, "Oh, maybe three days." And, and you know, so we waited. <laughs> It's you hard to get out. your head around that something that we take for granted is as simple as picking up a phone just wasn't wasn't an option. I mean, could you? So there were times when London was expecting to broadcast you for several hours on a trot, and they just never heard from you. Is that what you're saying? Well, well yes. I mean, trouble is <laughs> we had we had um, we knew that India was a difficult. That's why we had never sent right. We we didn't send people out there. I mean. Um, uh, Tony Lewis's side in 1972 won a test match on Christmas Day. The mm. only correspondent the BBC had on the tour was the Daily Express's man, Crawford White. And he obviously did his Daily Express stuff first. And then if he could get through, he did. And they tried, you know, they'd try ringing the Atel and that sort of thing. And mm. eventually they got hold of him. <laughs> uh, but that was how it was done. And it, and back then, you um, it was very much a wing and a prayer, wasn't it? It was you in a box of tricks, which you learned over the years, you know, various things that might be useful to carry, like a torch when the lights went off and <laughs> and a massive drum yes. of, of, of lead and, you know, gaffer tape. And it really was Heath Robinson stuff, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, gaffer tape is the most important uh, part of a, an outside broadcast producer's kit, really, because it holds everything together. 
yes, I mean it was it was it was season. But I, um, it's part of what I rather enjoyed about it, though, right. the whole business of outside broadcasting, the fact that you um, you know you've just got to get it on the air somehow. I yes. always thought well, my people say what what was your greatest achievement as Greenpeace was getting on the air from Bulawayo, I think. Right. And we did a full test match special from there because when I arrived the day before the test match, there were four bare wires hanging from the roof of a tent. And um, I, I sort of virtually had to build the commentary boxes. I then had to do trial and error with these four bare wires to get through, well, first to Harare and then to London. And um, amazingly, it worked. And I don't remember any interruptions on the line throughout the five days of the test match. <laughs> the thing that, that I come away with, having sort of refreshed my memory of all of that, is how remarkable it is that it ever, ever, ever happened at all. <laughs> oh, yes. Know, I, I, when you had pouring rain and wind and blazing sun and, and as you say, the most rudimentary of assistance, if you could call it that, in some places. And, um, yeah, it's just remarkable that it, yeah. that it ever, ever really came to pass. Did you... I mean, you talk very, um, you talk very modestly about your technical skills, but you've got to know pretty much what's going on to, in order to be able to make that work. Is that something the BBC taught you, or did you just figure it out as you went along? They didn't. Uh, I mean, I, 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 not formally anyway. I worked alongside a wonderful a bunch of people, the, the outside broadcast engineers. Right, who are great improvisers and, and capable of getting anything on the air, and and okay. um, and I I picked up bits and pieces of of that sort of thing from from dealing with them, and they were you know always very helpful and um, and that I mean taught me enough. And when I first went on tour, I initially I took very little equipment, just just a, a tape recorder for interviews and that sort right. of thing, um, and probably some crop clips, you know, you dismantle a telephone and put put the clips across the terminals <laughs> inside the, the handset of a telephone, and you can send a tape back um, down the telephone line. Right. But these days you couldn't even do that, right. could you? Because a well, telephone no, isn't a telephone anymore as we know it, is it? Telephones don't dismantle quite as easily. I mean, <laughs> I remember some places there was and quite a lot of the, uh, particularly upcountry a bit, and they don't even go up country nowadays much. No. Um, that you'd find that the only telephone in the hotel would have been in the manager's office. And I, I can remember sitting um, at a place called Gauhati up in Assam, and uh, the call would come through from London in the evening. They always had to call me, and I'd be summoned from uh, the lounge to the manager's office, <laughs> and he would be sitting at his desk while I took apart his beloved telephone. And he was looking slightly alarmed as I sort of unscrewed this, shoved, shoved yeah. the crock clips on it, and sent sent stuff back to London. It was, uh, yeah, <laughs> there were there were some alarming moments certainly. And it's all that sort of background stuff that, when you think about it, that that makes the whole trip such a rich tapestry of stories. Because everything you did was, you know, making do with what you had at the time, and you visited, as you said, some remarkable out of places you wouldn't have got to dreamt of going to in a million years um, oh no i mean I, I you know i was talking the other day to someone and i saw the name landy cotal in a in a in a document he was handling 
And um, I said, gosh, I've been there. And I don't know if you know where Landy Cotal is. No. It's halfway up, halfway up the Khyber Pass. Mm. It is the only town in the Khyber Pass. And um, it's, a, it's a lawless, worrying sort of place. Is it? And we, we were playing um, a match at uh, Peshawar. And there must have been a day off because um, the travel agents organised two minibuses, one for the team and one for the press, if they wanted to go, and anyone who wanted to go. But we had to carry tribal policemen in our, in our minibuses to protect us, who spoke not a word of English. At least I hope they spoke not a word of English because we, we christened <laughs> ours Private Pike. Um, so, well, they sort of decked out in regalia and with an old rifle and that sort of thing. They were they were wearing sort of Islamic, uh, dull Islamic dress and and uh, carrying a, yeah an ancient number two rifle. And um, yeah. when we decided to go into the bazaar in Landi Qatar, they were quite alarmed. These people because you know they were they had to somehow get us out alive, and we were we'd gone plunging into the bazaar in Landi Qatar in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, I think they, th <laughs> they thought we might be a bit vulnerable, but it was—I mean, it was, that was a fascinating experience going going through the Khyber Pass. In those days, the Russians were still in Afghanistan, mm. um, and so we sort of we got to the the last point, the border crossing, and and looked out into Afghanistan, which seemed just like another world, really, to think about it. Well, it must be. I mean, it's all—you it's, know—not too far-fetched to say it's much like landing your spacecraft on another planet and then going for a wonder you know people look yes yeah well, well believe me the geography of the Khyber Pass is a bit like the moon anyway <laughs> <laughs> and some of those stories I mean I've done my share of traveling and I know a bit about what that can be like on your Todd in the middle of nowhere you're very vulnerable did you ever you know I, I know you write about bits and bobs being stolen here and there which is you know par for the course but did you ever feel you know seriously in danger or was there anything that you just thought oh hell i really don't want to be here um it's funny actually because we were sent before one tour of india we were <laughs> we had to they required us at the bbc to go on a hostile environments course right um <laughs> taught taught all sorts of things about how to behave in a roadblock and and oh. what happened if you're kidnapped and, and you think your captors really? are going to shoot you, don't turn your back on them. Always look at them in the eye. They're less likely to shoot oh. you. All those sort of things. And and don't don't draw the curtains. Uh if you're gonna if you come into your hotel room at night, don't switch on the light before you draw the curtains. Because when you stand at the window to draw the curtains shut, you are a perfect target for a gun. <laughs> I suppose there must there must have been occasions when I thought this is this could be a bit dodgy. There was there was a famous occasion um, on the road to um, a place called Jamshedpur in India. Yeah, we had a we had a long trip up from Bangalore. We flew up to to Calcutta and then got on a rickety old bus provided for the press. And we all and we were told that the journey would take us uh, two and a half hours, and it took ten. Oh, exactly. And and we ploughed on through the night in this rickety old bus through the back roads of of West Bengal towards Jamshedpur. And somewhere in the middle of the night, the bus juddered to a halt, 
and uh, you know, most of we were trying to doze. It was incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> and um, it was not a light to be seen anywhere. But we became aware of the fact that the bus was surrounded by armed bandits, or as they call them in these those parts, dacoits. Dacoits, yeah. And um, we thought oh, we could be in a spot of bother here. There was a great big tree trunk across the road, so the bus had to stop. Right. So we had this courier with us, little Indian fellow, who's about four foot nothing in his stocking feet. Oh, so we sent him out to talk to the bandits. And uh, about 10 minutes of pretty animated conversation, the roadside, and then he got back on the, on the bus and the tree trunk was moved and um, the bandits melted away into the night <laughs> and, the, and we moved off and we're all, suddenly we're all wide awake and we said to this chap, Raju, what did you say to them? How did you save our lives? And he drew himself up to his full four foot nothing and he said, I told them to fuck off. <laughs> and that, I think, probably sums up what you have to do when you travel with the British press. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a direct, direct approach for sure. I mean, I when we got we... a bleep, a bleep <laughs> button. <laughs> when you were, um, I mean, it was very much the press corps abroad, wasn't it, for a lot of your travels. And there's great camaraderie between you all. And I'm guessing, you know, having been a pressman, I know that you try and help each other, or at least the decent ones amongst it's you funny, help each yes, other. It is out. a funny business because you're in competition, but you are yeah. actually helping each other out. You have to, don't you? Otherwise, yeah. you know, when yeah. you need help, no one wants to know. Yes. I always found the Sunday paper men where they uh, don't get that so much now because the, the dailies have to do the Sunday as well. Um but in those days, the Sunday paper men, so they're only working one day a week. Yeah, they had a right uh, we, touch, we, we called them the bucket and spade boys, but they were desperate because they'd always have to do one feature piece, yeah, which they'd need to be an exclusive. And they did get a bit competitive, or at least secretive. Really? But once they decided what the feature was, they, um, they would get very defensive about what they were writing. But it was really only the only the Sundays that got like that. So once they filed their copy on a Friday morning or whatever it might be, they pretty much then sauntered about for the rest of the week, you know, until it was time to deliver again, did they? Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, some of them, some of them were working for us occasionally. But yes. um, I can remember Shield Berry, who was now the Telegraph. Mm, great great writer. Um, yeah, he was doing the Sunday Telegraph on my first tour only. And and he was he disappeared to all sorts of places. And he got so ill. Oh. <laughs> he used to, he'd rejoin us on about a Friday, and he usually he'd take twenty four hours to recover from his travels. But he, I think he was writing a book at the time about um, uh, Ranji or one of that lot. Um, and so he you know he took the time to to travel around the country. I mean back then. I guess was worse than it probably is now. But I mean, being ill was, are you saying in your book is pretty much, you have to take it on the chin that yeah, no matter how careful you are, you are going to be ill. One day a plate is going to have your name on it. Oh, you just have to uh, hope that it's not, uh, but, but you know, the sod's law says that it's going to happen either on a travel day yeah. or on the morning of a test match or something like that. <laughs> It's, yeah, and you must have spent you must have spent a big chunk of your life traveling, whether that be on a plane or on. I mean, you talk about the godforsaken train that you and Agas were on forever and a day, and ice scurrying about and stuff. I mean, 
you must look back on that with you know as everybody does with a bit of sort of romanticism but at the time yes yes it's amusing to look back at and and not much fun at the time it's sort of will this ever end well i think my last full year doing um i'm trying to remember what the what the numbers were but my last few year full year doing the job i reckoned i had spent oh i think it was 190 nights in hotels and five in the air (laughs) five whole nights yeah and does so, how does that work do you, i mean does the bbc have an account that you just charge it to and you don't do you have but you but do you still have to get involved with the whole rigmarole of organizing that schedule well yeah i mean generally one travel agent or sometimes two rival travel agents would handle the press call right there were different people at different times um when i first started the same person did the team as as the press that isn't that isn't the case now hasn't been, wasn't by the time I finished. Um, I think all that is very different now. We were yes. we were very much in with the team for a lot of the travel, because traveling was so difficult, particularly in a place like India. Um, and our luggage would, would be handled by the, the team baggage handler. You know, you were told when to put it outside your door at night and, right. and it would turn up in the next place, having gone usually in a truck by road rattling along and, and, through and that struck, struck me i mean so much has changed and as you say the the, the relationship between the press and the, and the teams now is is changed irrevocably um but you were very much you know you count uh, you say you count some of the members of the team back then on your touring party as good friends of yours and now you know you, you would, would sit down with the guy and the media officer and they do their best not to let them say anything very interesting um, yes, I mean, show, uh, yeah. The the media man who travels with the team, and of course we didn't have that originally, will say who is going to be the interview for tonight, and he will attend the press conference at the end of the day and do an interview for television and an interview for the BBC, and and that'll be it. But and sometimes there'll be a little. We might talk to the media manager and say, "Can we have so and so?" Yeah, and he might say no. So there was never, it's not as simple as you bumping into Athers on the stairs and saying, look, any chance of a quick chat? And, you know, that just doesn't happen anymore. No, it, it used to happen. I mean, they, they always they were meant to get clearance from captain or manager to do an interview. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and you only got the captain. I mean, because you might want to talk to him just about every day. You'd say only at the end of the match, the day before the match and the final day of the match, unless he scores 100 or that sort of thing, and yeah. then you could talk to him. It would be that sort of arrangement with the, with the captain. That said, on my second tour of India in 84, um, the David Gower w- was almost the default interview, and he was the captain, and he would, we, we talked almost every night about whatever was happening. If there was no one else to talk to, he did it. But because he didn't have all these, the the, the team party were outside the playing members. You'd have a, a manager, a coach, a physio. That mm. would be it. No one else. Really? No media yeah, Dozens of them. Oh, absolutely. The press party is also pretty big, and not, not obviously in Sri Lanka at the moment, but um, um, it, it's... That's 
that's much bigger too. Not least because of photographers. My first tour, there were two photographers. They were both freelancers uh, doing their best, but the pictures they took would take, they couldn't be in the next day's paper. It would be the day after that before yeah. the picture got back because it took so long to send a picture. And they're hardly relevant. Well, exactly, except it was because there was no live television, so, um, mm. you know, people weren't seeing it all the time. But so it was there was still some novelty about seeing a shot of, but they had to caption it carefully to make sure it made some sort of sense. <laughs> and this is the tricky thing now, with the, especially at this time of night. By the time you read the paper, you're reading actually the day before's, review and you've listened to most of the next day so again it's very yeah. difficult to find things that are going to capture the audience isn't it i guess from a print perspective um, it, it is very i think the, the uh, i i don't envy the, the trying to find a different a different thing of of talking about it uh, funny enough if you do new zealand where play starts at uh, 10 o'clock at night our time yes. um they they quite often have to file Oh, just after lunch. So they get the first half of the day's play. It right. does go in the paper. And then you have to try and hope nothing too, too dramatic yeah. happens in the afternoon. Well, exactly. <laughs> it can look very... You can be made to look very silly. Of How much of the um, test match day in terms of... Because you're on air for six hours or more, um, which is remarkable in itself. How much of it is sort of like scripted is not the right word, but you must plan for it. I know that the commentators and the summarizers have sort of 20 minute stints where they come and go. Uh, and how do you come up with a 20 minute period out of, um, just out of interest? And, and secondly, well, you know, how much did you try to plan the day ahead? I inherited the 20 minutes, 20 oh. minutes for, for commentators and half an hour for summarizers. I have tried other other durations and come to the conclusion that 20 minutes was right. Right. Um, and I did a test match uh, as a commentator as well as producing with with Christopher Martin Jenkins in, in Sri Lanka, funny enough. I think it was the hottest test match I've ever been at. Um, and there were only the two of us and two summarizers. So we did half hour stints and it was, I think, too much. But you, you know, there were never choice. You do the, do they lose a bit of their spontaneity, a bit of the freshness? Is that the thought? You get you I mean, particularly in that heat, you got to the stage of just sort of beginning to flag and you right. sort of felt yourself. It's the only time Christopher Martin Jenkins is well known as having no idea of time. Yes. And always overrunning his commentary stints. I can tell you that he didn't on that occasion. <laughs> <laughs> he never did. There's wonderful stories of CMJ, and he was obviously oh, very exactly. well loved in amongst the, the core. I, I mean, I miss his voice terribly. Uh, yes. You know, you still hear, don't you, a clip every now and then of his commentary, and he was pretty peerless. He was. He, he was amazingly organised as a commentator right. when he was microphone, but it was the only organised part of his life. The rest of it was chaos. Yeah, and his knowledge was amazing because he loved the county scene, didn't he? Yes, it was almost teased teased about that sometimes by by players. Mike Atherton, who succeeded him as as Times cricket correspondent, used to tease him about the love of county cricket. Yeah, 
because um, Athos was not that keen on on the county game, he found it a bit boring. I think, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, CMJ was. Uh, uh, I remember once there was. Oh gosh, it was. I was in Barbados. We were in Barbados, and I was having a bit of a nightmare. I had to. Uh, the commentary box took a lot of shutting down at night, the big shutters, and I was very delayed leaving, and I was meant to be having dinner with a young chap from Radio Wales. And I was, I, so I was running late and then drove through Bridgetown in Barbados and there were roadworks, they dug up the road, I had to drive miles <laughs> around. So, and I was telling, the next day, I was taking CMJ to the, to the cricket ground in the morning in the car and and he um i said uh i was telling him this whole story i said it was awful i said it was it was like that film clockwise with john cleese and there was a silence and christopher was looking a bit sort of wistfully and then he said my whole life's like that <laughs> very good yeah a very good point sounds very apt as well yeah, exactly <laughs> do you um do you miss that you know, I suppose you don't miss that grief, but do you sort of miss the camaraderie? Oh, yes. And I still dream about it. You know, at you? Night. And quite often I'm in a commentary box. Usually some disaster's happening. So we're, we're looking out of the window and someone's built a brick wall in front of us or, or the game has started. And I suddenly look around and say, hang on, shouldn't we be commentating on this? It's, it's that sort of thing. Or Funny, you sit down like the, the microphone. Um, it's and like the actor, no isn't it? Or, yeah, it's like the actor yeah. coming on thinking oh, they've forgotten their lines or something. It is very much the actor's dream, and any actor will tell you. Um, yes, you go on stage and you, um, you you don't know what play it is, you haven't seen a script and all that sort of thing. And and that's pretty much the sort of dream that I have from time to time. I used to have it more. Um, it used to be just about every night. So after 14 years after retiring... I've probably got to the stage where I don't do it every night, only about three times a week. Really? Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> it is. Well, because it just shows it was such a big part of my I did it for 34 years. So it's um it is a fairly large slice of my life. Yes. And it's not it's not a nine to five job where you come away and leave it behind you. I mean, it's an all-encompassing life. Yes. It must have been very hard, you know, because we all know those of us who do occasionally travel at Things don't stop at home. There's always something going on and family and problems and yes. and God knows what else. And you thousands of miles away on the end of the phone can really breed some resentment, can't it? Well, yes. I mean, I'm sure that um, yeah, I there must have been times when they cursed me at home. And I, um, I'm happy to say that my children seem to have turned out reasonably um, <laughs> good. <laughs> sensible and stable it hasn't scarred them too much but yeah i mean the trouble is the other thing is you're never off duty really entirely no. certainly not on tour and um even even when you're at home really you're never entirely off duty yes, you could you could get a phone call anytime saying by the way this is just broken go yes. and find us yeah XYZ. i mean if um you know, if something happens and they can't get hold of the, the cricket correspondent, you're the next one on the list. In fact, actually, going back to, <laughs> to CMJ again, um, <laughs> because of his his reputation for being late, we used to have this main sports desk of the day on a weekday at, at 6.45. And um, if, I'd be, if I was in the office and CMJ was due to do a piece 
for the 645 sports desk, the producer of the sports desk would always say, can you be on standby? And I reckon I got on more often than he did on those <laughs> occasions. Because <laughs> there'd be just no idea where he is. Well, because uh, uh, nowadays they, they have broadcast lines in their houses. Do they? Yeah, ISDN lines. And, and of course, particularly since the pandemic and everyone's worked out how to do it, except me, um, <laughs> you know, doing all this stuff on computers, Zooms and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, but in those days, you had BBC unattended studios, which were just a room in an hotel or a council office or a library oh, right. or somewhere, which the keys would be kept with so-and-so. And, -so and there were always details for everyone. And his nearest one, where he lived in Sussex, was in Horsham. Right. And now the trouble was that CMJ knew the world record time. <laughs> Downhill, with all the traffic lights on green, no other traffic on the road <laughs> and a following wind between his house and the unattended studio in Horsham. And that was what he allowed every time, yeah. the world record time. <laughs> so he was almost always late. Yeah. What, <laughs> and he'd just come on in a flap, say, sorry, sorry, and... He, he'd always say, can I do it now? And they say, the programme's off the air now. <laughs> <laughs> But you could never get mad with the bloke because it was just the way. No, it was d d disarmingly innocent, really. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about. Uh, I'd like to know a bit more about Brian Johnston because, obviously, a very well-known character, much loved, and he was this sort of schoolboy comedian. But having delved a bit into his background and read the various biographies and things, there was there was a lot more to him than that. And the stuff that he did for TV for Donkey's Years and then for radio, fascinating chat. Yeah, How did you two first meet? Well, um, funny enough, he was, um, when I first joined uh, outside broadcast department, there was an office. Um, I remember it was called the Staff Commentator's Office and it had four names on the door. And Raymond Baxter was one of them, if you remember Raymond Baxter. No relation, I hasten no, to say. No, I don't, know. You don't? It was, it says that, that's time, I'm afraid, going by. <laughs> he, he was the presenter for a time. He was the presenter of Tomorrow's World. Okay. And he was a motor racing correspondent and all sorts of things like that. He, he did all sorts of commentary. There's a chap called Alan Clark, who was the main football commentator. Yeah. And Robert Hudson, who was another one you wouldn't remember, but he eventually became head of outside broadcast. Uh, he did cricket and rugby. And Brian Johnston. When I first joined, I think Brian was away on tour, so I didn't meet him until probably the spring of the next year. Um, and, I mean, this is the most famous name there that we had. Was it? Uh, and he would sort of... But he was just as a genial person who wandered down the corridor, morning, old man. I mean, right. he'd say morning, old man, to to rather beautiful secretaries. He'd <laughs> 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 come across a rather startled-looking 18-year-old girl saying, saying, Brian just, just called me eight -year old man. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He does it to everyone. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Um, he was just, a, I mean, to a certain extent, he was exactly the same character on the air as often. Right. He really was. But it belied the fact, you know, he won an MC in the war. Yes. And he would say, oh, they're just handing them out with the rations. Well, they didn't. No, of course they didn't. 
uh, and uh, he was in the guards' armored division's advance on Arnhem uh, when they were pushing up uh, to what became a bridge too far. Yeah, um, and so he, you know, he was he was in all that, um, and he did done all sorts of things. But he used to say, you know, people introduced me as the cricket commentator, and he said, I earn far less commentating on cricket than I do doing all the other things I do. Yes, yeah. It wasn't a major, but but that was what he was known as, the cricket commentator. And he clearly um, loved it. And, and the oh, fact that, absolutely adored it. I mean, it was yeah. his great passion. His instructions to his wife when they first got married were to find a house within walking distance of Lord's. Yeah. And she did very well with the first one. In fact, the, the three houses that I knew him living in were, were all within walking distance of Lord's. He's a sort of um, Woodhousian character in many ways, you know, as you well, said, strolling, yeah, strolling down, uh, down the road to Lord's with a whistle on his lips and, you know, and then saying what ho to everybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, straight out of P.G. Woodhouse, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, just, it was... I can imagine, and I think it did happen. There were some people it began to irritate, um, and I thought, sort of think once it did, once the prep school humour and all that sort of thing started to irritate you, I can imagine it would be insufferable. Yes, uh, it didn't do. You know, I I enjoyed it, but but um, I think there might have been people who thought, oh, for goodness' sake, and of course, huge contrast with the other great broadcaster on cricket, who was John Arlott. Um, who was um, he was an ex Hampshire policeman that's right and a very different character but and and I've heard it suggested some people say oh they hated each other they didn't they were just very 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 different people yeah but that's uh, what you want in a commentary box sure entirely absolutely you want a bit of contrast and different voices and they certainly had that I mean Arlott was sort of famous they always talk about his Hampshire burr that's it. Which is sort of, oh, no, he was a sort of a grumble down there. Wonderful, uh, wonderful voice, yeah. But I don't remember ever having heard anyone else from Hampshire sounding anything like it. So. <laughs> no, that's a good point. It's a unique <laughs> accent, isn't it? And I, I it's, the, book he wrote on, um, the book he wrote on wine is one of my favourite books on my book. Yes. And I know he was hugely into his wine. And probably oh, hugely, oh, yes. but... <laughs> Yes. But, um, um, did he, he used to? Did he used to try and sort of, you know, educate the the commentary box on the wine knowledge? Do you know? Well, yes, uh, <laughs> we were aware of his capacity, certainly, <laughs> very much so. Um, but that wasn't just legend; that really was true. Oh, absolutely true. I mean, to, to when I first started, there wasn't really a lot. Of, I mean, he would if he did a county match. He, he always had this enormous. Um, old battered uh, briefcase. Yes. And he would have a couple of bottles of claret in that. Really? Because I can remember one of the, um, I realised I'd arrived when I was doing a county match with John. So it was just the two of us there. And we came to the lunch interval and he he said, um, you know, opened his briefcase and said, get yourself a glass, lad. And I, I thought, oh, well, this is, I've been accepted. That's Okay. And and yeah, when he retired, years after that, you when he he went to live in Alderney, yes, 
and you'd fly into Alderney in, in, in the morning and Arlett would be there in Alderney, Alderney International Airport, which is a bus shelter, really. Um, and uh, he'd be there with the same familiar old briefcase and he'd pull out, it would be half past nine in the morning and, and, a, and a bottle of something nice and white and cold would come out with a couple of steel goblets and, and you finish this bottle off before you before you headed off to his car. Lord. And I tell you what, the way he drove, you needed to have a drink before you tried it. Well, <laughs> he was great pals with Beefy at the end, wasn't he? And I remember Beefy saying something like, you know, he'd be on the phone, you're coming over, bring your thirst. You know? <laughs> <laughs> bring your thirst, yes. That was, that was very much it. But he, he was, I mean, the extraordinary thing about him was that, that he'd have a couple of bottles of... of um, Claret in the lunch interval just for himself. Oh, um, and then in the afternoon, he'd probably be a better commentator than he was in the morning. Really? And if it was you or I, all you'd want to do is sleep, surely. Exactly. Yes. I mean, just... <laughs> I, I didn't really start you know, behaving like a mortal and getting drunk if he drank a couple of bottles of, of wine until well into his dotage, really. Did you like commentating or were you always much happier... In the back. No, I loved commentating. It's right. great fun. Really did. And I, I mean, I didn't have the advantage. What I liked best was on the rare occasions when I was commentating but not producing it. Because it is, you can be very quickly distracted yes. by some crisis going on behind you that you're aware of right. <laughs> when you're commentating. You can't do anything about it because you're commentating. Um, and uh, I, that could be difficult. But there were occasions. I mean, South Africa, I did a bit of commentary with the SABC, and then you'd have someone else looking after the production, so you didn't have to worry about that, which which was did make life easier, certainly. You have, no, it, it, it is great fun, really. Do they have... So when they, the guys are commentating, do they have somebody in their ear telling them things? Uh, no, 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 wouldn't do right. that. But there's always, there's always some... I can't sort of, there's so many different odd things that happen in a day and you're just really trying to facilitate to make it easier for the commentators to do their job by handling all the quirks. And, I mean, there'll be a certain amount of looking ahead and and, and you think, oh, gosh, lunch is in 20 minutes. What are we doing in the lunch interval? Yeah. It's that sort of thing. There are all sorts of things that go on in a... Uh, people say, what, do, what does a producer do? Really, the answer is absolutely anything it takes to get that show on the air, yeah. really, and to get it off the air on time. And some of my favourite moments from the years have been it, during breaks in play. And um, again, you know, you might think they're going off the rain for half an hour and you end up still talking four hours later. Is there anything you can plan for that? Or is it really just a case of winging it and hoping they're good enough to keep people's interest? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, you do. Um, I used to have a wonderful PA who uh, Shilpa, who yes, who, who could get anyone in into the commentary box for an interview. I, mean, I always used to say, if I said to her, "I hear that the Pope is interested in cricket," he'd have been walking through the door within half an hour. I mean, I remember um, seeing Shilpa around the grounds, and she'd always be scurrying okay. with, with someone, you know, getting someone for you. Oh, she's absolutely amazing at finding people. Um, just after I retired, I was at Lords, and I was aware that she had 
discovered that um, uh, what's his name, Harry Potter, Daniel. Oh um, yes, Radcliffe. Radcliffe. That's it. I wanted to say <laughs> Craig. Um, but <laughs> he, he, uh, that he was at the, at Lords. Now, the, so were thirty-five thousand other people. Yes, and um, she found him. Really, amazingly, she found him and got it. And he was only there with his mates. You know, he wasn't. I remember hearing it? Yeah, he was in like a lovely car. Um, and <laughs> she got him on there. But that was that was a, tr a bit of a triumph. Um, yes, I mean we started talking uh, when I took over the program. The usual pattern, we were on Radio 3 in those days. Right. Um, and the usual pattern was that if it rained, you might you have a look at the weather. We're in for a bit of a break here, back to the studio. And the um, studio presenter would play music. Oh. Um, you did, and that was the standard thing. And Arla, particularly, was always very keen. The first drop of rain fell, he'd turn around to me and say, back to the studio. <laughs> and and uh, as we went on, there was a day in 1976, um, the Lord's Test, I remember, the Saturday. The Test match was really well poised between England and West Indies. And um, it was a really tense moment. And the umpires came down the steps of uh, the pavilion at the start of play. The gates had been closed two hours before the start of play. Was, Lord's was packed. And very, very light rain started to fall. And it was so light that the umpires actually waited by the gate. Yeah. Because, you know, as soon as it stops, we're going to carry on out to the middle. And they waited there for about a quarter of an hour, and the rain didn't stop, so they went back up to their room. And, in fact, the rain never stopped all day. It was never hard. So play would have started as soon as the rain stopped, but they didn't bowl a ball all day. Oh. And we, in the commentary box, we just started talking because, obviously, was going to start and, and all sorts of things that and I worked out a technique which stood me in good stead over the years to have a sort of triangle three three people on the air three commentators right. and you refresh it by replacing one yes from time to time in those days because we didn't have emails or Twitter or any of that stuff so we were dependent uh, for for fuel for a discussion on listeners letters. Yeah. But we used to get a lot of those, so, so there was fuel. It's just that it wasn't reacting to today's play. It was what had happened two days before, probably. Okay. Um, and, and and that's it. And, and Arlott, the great one for handing back to the studio, used to sit at the back with a cup of coffee, and after a bit something would happen uh, in the discussion that got him interested, and he'd sort of nudge me and say, can I go on? So I'd haul someone off and put Arlott on, and he was always fascinating because he was such a brilliant historian of the game yeah people like fred truman yeah now fred fred could be curmudgeonly when play was going on <laughs> when play wasn't going on he was absolutely fascinating he's he had a huge knowledge of the history of the game yeah and he would talk about anything and everything of course he got him on the subject of fast bowling he was um peerless really in what he had to say about it and I've just realised while you're talking that the sort of reason I think that those off, uh, not off air, but those off play moments work is because they feel a bit like stolen moments. And it's almost like a snow day, whereas, you know, you, your dad says you're not going to school today. You feel like you've 
had a bit of a reprieve for a while. And so it's almost like a sort of conspiratorial conversation that perhaps was a, talking about things a little bit differently than they would normally. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is. You're eavesdropping. Yes. I remember when, when we started that, the, um, uh, as I say, we were on Radio 3 in those days, and they, they slightly resented our, our Philistine presence in their midst. <laughs> uh, but there was a, a head of um, Radio 3 presentation who knew nothing about cricket. But he, he said to me one day, he said, Do you know, it's brilliant. He said, it's the absolute supreme art of uh, unscripted conversation. Yeah. Which I suppose is, is it. And the great thing is at its core, it has the one common theme of, of a love for the game of cricket. But there's so much you can say about cricket, but um, it covers life, really. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And the, and the one you mentioned in the book, particularly uh, about those times, was was Blowers, and I think it was Foxy or somebody, or maybe Vic, during the, the storm when you were... Um, oh, yes. Yes. In, Brisbane. in Brisbane, Brisbane. Yes. and I remember listening to that live and 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 stopping the car. I was I, I was a regional reporter then, roving about that, and I remember pulling over and thinking, "I'm going to listen to this." You know, it, it got onto Peck of the Week, did it? It was brilliant. Yeah. It was truly yeah. brilliant. Um, yeah. In a strange way, you could never put your finger on. No, I know. If you said, uh, and if you planned it, if you said, "Right, we're gonna there's going to be a storm, and we're going to do commentary <laughs> on it." It wouldn't work. No. But because it, it sort of crept up on them. Yeah. And it felt very um, live and you could hear the storm. No, it was exciting. It was truly exciting. I mean, without sort of, you know, casting aspersions or mentioning names, Peter, I mean, the, the, the tone has changed by necessity over the years. Um, and maybe that depth, real depth and love for cricketing knowledge is not quite as prevalent. I would, I would prefer... Um, with um, some of the commentators and, and summarisers. Yes. But, but um, you know, she's still doing pretty well for an old girl, isn't it? I, I think it is. I mean, I, I, actually, I think what they've just done with that um, uh, commentary from various places, you know, Agas in his attic and... Yeah. Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a man in the Strictly Come Dancing studio and... <laughs> different places they were around the country doing I think I think they did incredibly well yeah. and, and and it's the sort of bedrock of that sort of feeling of, of TMS they couldn't have done that cold uh, you know, it was because you had three pretty experienced commentators and some good summarizers too yeah. I think they handled it very well indeed I really do yeah no it's still brilliant and it's still essential listening for anyone who's even got the vaguest interest in cricket, and which yes. um, for me, yeah. and during this time, I'm sure I speak for many that a it's the horrible winter, and b we're in the middle of this absolute crisis, and to hear you know sounds from from somewhere lovely and warm, and to hear familiar voices is very reassuring. Well, I was thinking uh, during the summer, and and um, and actually again just just recently, I, I'm actually very proud of cricket in. Mm. in this whole crisis of the pandemic that they've done because they they made it work last summer. They led the way, really, I think, really on all did. other sports for getting it going sensibly and making sure that protocols and things were followed yeah. with no fuss and and have brought us brought us something to uh, latch onto, something that's happening. And that's, uh, I mean, 
Do you think that in the uh, in the war, I think they stopped racing briefly, and then Winston Churchill said, "No, people need really? some sport going on," and so they and so it got going again. You can read the racing results in the paper on the same day that reports D-Day. Extraordinary, but you're right. People <laughs> that's same extraordinary. Can't spend your life in doom and gloom and misery you need some respite don't you and absolutely. I, I, absolutely i couldn't agree more i think that, that, that you know the way that we brought those guys over and and credit to them for coming in the summer and, and he, held that impeccably observed bubble was you yeah know, inspirational and um yes. yeah I, I really agree with you i mean um these days until all this kicked off you'd be making a making a living treading the boards and things on your various <laughs> blowers and stuff is that all I, now completely on hold i think that's that's probably gone i was talking to blowers the other day and he, he's got a whole string of of uh one-man shows and dinners and things like that they're all being cancelled mm. i i mean i had you know quite a few after dinner speeches uh lined up for 2020 and a whole lot obviously got cancelled yeah uh, and and i'm confident the, the few that I've got in the diary for this year will also be cancelled. Yes. Although I have got one pencilled in for December. <laughs> so you never know. Get your fingers crossed. Uh, but, but I, yeah, I mean, you just sort of, the, the world, the world has changed. Yes. It really has. I mean, do, have you got any, um, have you got any books on the go, Peter, or have you sort of done that? I think I've probably done that. I did a book, um, what, about 18 months ago on, yeah. Um, on the whole business of, of doing the stage show with blowers, hmm. um, and uh, called On the Boards with Blowers, imaginatively. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's it's still it's still there and available on on, on Amazon or whatever. Um, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, I whether I do any more, I don't know. I think probably I may have exhausted that particular genre. Um, do you want to flog that horse to death? Sorry? You don't want to flog that particular horse to death? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so if people want to keep an eye on whether or not when things are getting better that you'll be up, out and about, is there anywhere they can do that? Have you got a website or anything like that? Uh, I, I don't have a website, actually. Um, no, I mean, I, I would tweet if I was doing it. As I say, I don't think I'll be doing I think Blowers and I, we, to a certain extent, we pioneered for for a number yes. of people to do this thing, and, and and I think probably the the field has become too crowded for two right. old buffers like us. Um, and as my wife very kindly said when I retired from the BBC, you've probably got five years, and then no one will know who the hell you are. Um, and, <laughs> Thank you, dear. To be fair, I think I might have stretched it out to six, but <laughs> probably that's what that's what happens eventually. No, no one remembers us, you know, because broadcasting is a very ephemeral business. People yeah. do just forget that you were around. I mean, when I my first outside broadcast was with a man called Rex Alston. Yeah. Is that a name that means anything to you? Yeah, I've heard the name. Yeah, so well, that's, that's something, because quite <laughs> often I say that and people are absolutely blank, because, I mean, there was a time when Rex Olsen was as famous, or probably more famous than any sports broadcaster now. Really? Because the field was a bit smaller. 
but you know Rex Alston, Raymond Glenn Denning, people like that. They were right. they were very famous names, uh, and so to me, as I said, bowled over to be sharing a commentary box with with uh, Rex Alston, who became a good friend actually, which is rather nice. But now most people would say I have not the slightest idea who you're talking about because no. you know that's that's in fact funny enough I heard his. I heard his voice on a on a clip on Radio Four the other day. I can't remember what they were doing, but there was Rex. I said, "Oh, nice to hear." And of course, they didn't even give him a name check because it didn't mean anything to them. No. <laughs> Are you still friendly, you know, with the cricketers um, or people in the business that still, you know, you still chat to them, or is it a case of once out, gone? Oh no, I was actually talking to. Um, I talked to blowers on a very regular basis, but he's retired now as well. Um, I was talking to Agus the other day and Simon yeah. Mann I talked to from time to time. And I, you know, occasionally, what quite often happens is is that I hear something on the radio, right. uh, on TMS, that, that that I know, and they probably know I know. Sometimes they say, I bet Peter Baxter would know yeah. that. Yeah. And I will then send them a message saying whatever, or just add something. I mean, um, Simon Mann tweeted a picture of a an enormous monitor lizard oh, yeah. walking walking round the ground at uh, Gaul the other day. <laughs> so I sent him a tweet saying, um, say, say, I can remember one of those holding up play just down the road in, in Matara, which is a town about 10 miles further on down the road from Gaul. Right. And we had a, we had a, a regional match there and this dirty great lizard walked Right, I think it was bigger than that one. It walked straight down the middle of the wicket, and so everyone just stood back and let it go. <laughs> and that was the one that Tuffers was terrified of, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. Before I let you get on, I want to ask you about the brilliantly entitled PBI's press box incidents. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, can yeah. I imagine the glee with which these are retold? You know, amongst the press, and 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 as you explain in your book, this is when something kicks off in the press box. The next thing you know, everybody's telling each other, "Hey, there's been a PBI." The one I remember reading at the time, Peter, was Lawton's set to with um uh, with yeah. with, with, uh, with Viv. Yeah. yeah, and. Yeah. And uh, for their sins, my parents, I think, took the Express then, as he would have been writing for at the time. And I remember him lampooning this, you know, this sort of foaming at the mouth captain of West Indies who'd come in to give him what for. I'd imagine Viv, who's got the hunt with you, is pretty terrifying. Were you there at that time? Oh, I was. Funny enough, we'd, we'd had a bit of trouble. Antigua is, well, actually, I think it's a bit easier now. Then it was a bit of a powder keg. There were a lot of right uh, difficult things going on uh, there was, i i have to say i didn't enjoy my first trip to antigua because of, of that and this was the first time i'd been there ah. 1990 and um uh, viv yeah because lawton had written something uh, which um viv didn't take kindly to um and i have to say actually viv became a great friend too later mm. than that um but uh we, our commentary position, because we'd been denied a commentary box, we'd had a real battle with the authorities there, and the press had been helpful um, in that they'd given us the front row of the press box to do our commentary. So I, we were on the air, obviously, and the West Indies team had taken the field and were walking out there, 
And I looked out of the window and thought, that's odd, Desmond Haynes is leading them, leading them out. And then I looked round at the back of the commentary box and, oh, hang on, that's Viv. And he was not even changed. He was in black jeans and a T-shirt and um, having a real row with, with Lawton. And uh, the press, of course, all eagerly hanging around <laughs> watching this with great interest. And imagine. one of them, I think it was Matthew Engel, throwing some pebbles at the window of the commentary box inside to attract the attention of a photographer who was on the roof just outside the, the press box, Graham Morris, who was, um, he wanted to attract his attention so he'd get a shot of this, of, of Viv in the press box. Um, but yeah, it was it was an extraordinary moment. He sort of did a double take. Viv was very lucky because after about five minutes of play, a shower came over the players went off. Right. And when they came back on again, he was there leading the team again. And was, it, but, so was he basically up there saying, uh, you know, I, I totally don't disagree with what you've just written and if you watch it, mate, sort of thing. Is that what you he, just... he told him that he, had, he, knew, he knew people. On, obviously, he knew everyone on the island and right. um, they could sort him out. <laughs> it was, it was, it, it was. I'd say a veiled threat, but there was nothing veiled about it. <laughs> it and, he, and even today, he is a sort of you know sixty-year-old or whatever he is. He looks like he could, he could. Oh, you know. yeah, he'd done a bit of boxing when I, I, he That's... he was he did some boxing, and he looked he looked he's built like a boxer. Yeah, he always looked like a like a heavyweight, didn't he? And they called him Smokey one time, didn't they? Smoking, smoking Joe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he um, uh, oh god, a couple of tours later, he was working for for us. The first time I got him to to work for TMS, because I thought I need an Antiguan in Antigua, <laughs> and I thought, well, who else do you get? Ren, no. it's got to be Viv, and uh, and so he came. He, he, he delighted me, and he was meticulous in his timing, and always turned up on time, and brilliant, but. I remember on the first day, he said, Imam, um, have you got a pass for me? And I said, Viv, I'm sorry, I, I just never occurred to me you would need a pass for this ground. I said, I mean, there's a stand over there with your name on it for a start. <laughs> and uh, he said, and he looked rather sad, and he said, they forget. <laughs> yeah. So luckily, Trevor Bailey had just gone home uh, at the end of the previous test, so I gave him Trevor Bailey's pass, even though I'm sure you could understand that Viv looks nothing like Trevor Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> it was enough to get him in for the rest of the test. Man. That's brilliant. Uh, that just about sums it up. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. And that's all right. That you fun. Can tell, I'm a real fan. And um, thank you for the many hours of joy and respite, respite you brought to us over the years. Well, thank you. I shall now go and try and work out how Zoom works. <laughs> Next time you'll be prepared. <laughs> I will. Indeed. Thank you, Peter. Okay. All right. All the best. Bye. And I hope you all enjoyed that. Even if you're not cricket fans, I hope you enjoyed some of the chat. Um, and uh, perhaps we'll move on to more uh, common things next time. But for, indulge me this once. It is my podcast after all. Uh, okay. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Um, just to let you know, uh, we're going to run about 12... Uh, episodes in this season uh, we ran about 20 last time it was way too much and we were doing that every week and it um, you know I, I was super enthusiastic and I didn't have anything to do <laughs> 
but now things have changed and as I say I'm constantly um, constantly on zooms and things and ticketed events and also still trying to write and, and cook up other ideas like uh, my collaboration with Leggett's and the Oriental Cigar Gin by all means check them out www.leggets.com leggets.com and by no means least the book's still out there um, we are getting into dwindling numbers of the of the book um, and there's talk of whether or not we go to a, another reprint uh, it's sold very very well all over the world uh, there are a few left so if you've been thinking about buying it perhaps now's the time and if you'd like me to sign it for you just drop me a line nick at nick-hammond.com that's about it folks until next time stay safe and look after each other.